We are all the way to Romans 3, if you can believe it. And uh, today, we are going to be learning about the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law. And uh, you might be wondering, like, why are we spending a third week on this? Didn't John basically just talk about the same thing uh, last week? And you're kind of right. So last week, John was looking at, if you remember, whataboutism and the way that we tend to judge people outside the church who, or who aren't like us. And today's kind of more, what about you? Uh, Paul is kind of saying like, yeah, yeah, those guys, they're bad, but let me talk to you, church, about you guys today and some of your specific issues. And so Paul is going to be arguing that everybody, secular or religious, we all fail to follow the law well enough to be judged righteous by God on Judgment Day. But why is Paul relentlessly crushing our fragile egos for a third chapter? Well, is he trying to like motivate us to try harder, like a really cruel Peloton trainer? None of us enjoy being told we're not good enough, right? It's pretty much our generation's issue at this moment. If you don't believe me that we don't like being told that we're wrong, try giving a millennial or a Gen Zer a bad grade or a bad performance review and see how they react. They take it well. They're like, oh, thank you for pointing out my flaw and helping me grow. I really appreciate that. No, there's thousands of books about how to give critical feedback to young people these days and have them accept it well and not just storm out angry. <laughs> and so this is why uh, Paul is berating us again. It's because next week we're getting to Romans 3.21 through 26, a text which Martin Luther considered the center, not just of a whole book of Romans, of the entire Bible. And that's high praise from the original reformer. Because in Romans 3.21, we get to the good news, finally, of how Jesus saves us from being punished for our sins. But if we can't accept that we've never done anything wrong, then instead of the cross being good news, it's at best irrelevant, it's at worst offensive. It makes no sense. It'd be like if you went to a doctor uh, for a routine um, operation or just a checkup. And he's like, hey, so we're going to have you pop over to the chemo room and we're going to do some chemotherapy real quick. And you're like, but I don't have cancer. Have you not heard? Like, what? I'm out of here. You're, you're doing a mix-up and, and this happens and it's, it's not, not a good thing. But if this doctor was right, let's say that he ran a blood test for something else, finds out you have cancer, uh, what if this doctor was like, I really don't want to ruin your day. Like, if I, if I tell this guy this, he's going to be really upset. He might cry. It's going to be awkward for me. I'm just going to, like, let him go on with his life. You know, he has at least a year left. He'll, he'll really enjoy it. No, that would be cruel. That would be awful. Um, it actually would be loving for the doctor to kindly sit you down and tell you about your cancer and tell you what's going on. And the first question you're going to ask, would you ask if someone, a doctor said you had cancer? You say, can you treat this? Am I going to live? What's, what's the deal? Can you please just let me know? And the good news here is that Paul is saying that though our sin is like cancer, the gospel is like the cure. It's like it's treatable. It's like we're catching it early. And so if you here, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, uh, if you consider yourself a Christian, you might be wondering, why is Paul writing this to a church that was mainly filled with Christians? 
Why is Paul telling Christians that they can't live up to the law when we know he's already said we're saved by grace and not the law? Well, as John mentioned last week, even as Christians, uh, we tend to fall into what theologians call legalism. And legalism is the idea that you are saved by or you maintain your salvation through your performance. Just It's, it's part of being self-righteous. Tim Keller talks about legalistic pastors. He's a pastor in New York. Sorry, legalistic churches. He says this about how we act when we're legalistic. He says, legalistic churches produce detailed codes of conduct and details doctrine. Members continually need to hear that they are more holy and more accurate than the liberal churches that are wrong. They functionally rely on their theological correctness and sound doctrine equals righteousness. And legalism is something that many of Paul's original re- readers would have studied with as they were coming out of Judaism. They were very familiar with the Old Testament law, but this is something that we still struggle with today. And we constantly are going to be drifting towards legalism. Um, it's just a reality. And I'm not condemning you guys this morning because I grew up uh, going to church my whole life but I was one of the purest legalists until I was about 30 years old, and I joined this church, all right? I, um, I understood that I didn't think the gospel was for me. I thought the gospel was just something we would preach to non-Christians to save them because they were bad. Uh, my job was to be good and to shame everyone else into being good as well. That's how I love people. You're welcome. <laughs> I've even had to go back and apologize uh, to some of my friends in high school the ways I treated them. And one of my friends, my best friend, he told me, he's like, it's okay, like, I knew you were trying to love me. <laughs> I was like, wow, you're so gracious with me. Thank you. Um, but yeah, as a, as a legalist, I, I thought that not getting drunk and reading my Bible every day pretty much made me a good person. And those aren't bad things. I'm not saying don't read your Bible um, or, or don't be sober. But um, there's a lot more, actually, to being to following God's law than just those things. And as a legalist, I could never accept criticism from anybody ever, like I was saying about our generation. Um, especially my wife, when she would criticize me, I was just, would just battle her to the death about how I was right and she was wrong. And uh, if I couldn't convince her, I would just wait for it to blow over and uh, move on. Because my religion was built on me being right all the time. Uh, but after, after joining Restored, I began to realize, actually, the gospel is for me, too. Like, I, I actually have some things I do wrong sometimes. And I, I never remember, after realizing that I was not perfect, I had an argument with my wife uh, in which she laid out a case for something I'd done wrong. And I just thought about it for a second. And I was like, you're right. I'm sorry. And she's like, I don't think you heard me. Like, I think you're, you're confused. She's like, you did this. And I was like, yeah, I know. I said, I'm sorry. She's like what is going on here? Is this like a mind game? <laughs> uh, but God's changing my heart. So how do you accept criticism, whether it's at church or at work with your roommates or your, or your family? How often do you apologize? Because I promise you, you're hurting people probably most days. But if you can't admit that you're wrong, if you can't ever admit fault, is probably because you're building your identity, your righteousness, or salvation on your performance or your obedience to some rules, uh, and that's the heart of legalism. And so also, if you're sitting there 
thinking like how the person next to you needs to hear this, uh, then this, this sermon's for you, and you're the one who needs to hear what Paul has to say today. Because Paul, listen, he wants us, he's not trying to beat us up. He wants us to have a profitable gospel. For those of you who are in finance, like Adam's getting his uh, CFA right now, or if you're into Robinhood or Coinbase, how do you make money when you're buying and selling things? Do you buy, you buy high at the peak and then you wait till things are low and you freak out and you sell? No, it's the opposite, right? You want to buy things that are low and then sell them when they're high, and the difference is your profit margin. And the good news, and, and so that in the same way, Paul's trying to show that we need to have a lower view of ourselves a higher view of God, because in the gospel, it's very profitable. It's, it's great news because it's filling in that gap for us. Does that make sense? And so the good news is that the more that we see the depth of our sin and the more that we, and the more that we experience how pure and holy God is, the bigger the cross is in our mind to fill that gap. So again, Paul's goal and my goal, not to make anyone feel guilty this morning, my goal is just to show how amazing Jesus is and why we should put our trust in him and not in our own good works. Remember when Jesus was hanging out with Pharisees, which is probably his least favorite thing to do, he said that he who is forgiven much loves much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And our passion for God is directly correlated with how much you believe you have been forgiven. And so Paul is about to show us how much we need forgiving and how much we have been forgiven. So let's jump into Romans 3 and verse 1. Um, and today's scripture, it's kind of unique because it's basically like an ancient FAQ is what Paul's doing here. He's having like a theoretical conversation with objections the church might be throwing at him. And there's, there's four questions approximately, but we're just going to look at uh, two of them this morning just for time's sake. And two questions we're going to look at. Actually, I'm going to pray, and we'll get into the questions. Father, we are grateful that you don't let us uh, have a higher opinion of ourselves than, than we should have. We're grateful that you are perfect and holy. Uh, but at the same time, like, you loved us enough to make up the difference. Uh, I pray that we would um, just be open to, to you showing us ways that we still experience legalism and self-righteousness, and you would grow us out of that. Amen. All right, so the two points we're going to be looking at, the first is, what is the advantage of knowing God's law? And does following God's law make us more righteous? The second point. So first one, what is the advantage of knowing God's law? And second, does following God's law make us righteous? So um, the first question here. Um, is directed towards people, again, who were coming out of Judaism. And Paul just spent a lot of time saying um, that we're, we're not better, right? And so the Jews would probably be wondering, like, well, what's the point? Like, the whole Old Testament made us seem so special. We were, like, uh, God's favorites. Was that all for nothing, you know? And um, God's answer is that, no, actually, like, knowing the law is really helpful and it's really beneficial for you. And uh, I want to read a verse from Isaiah that where God actually talks about why he gives us rules. He says this in Isaiah 48. He says, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you. He directs you in the way you should go. 
If only you would have paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. No anxiety. That's, that's nice. Uh, your well-being like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand. Your children like its numberless grains. Your name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. And having lots of kids was kind of like prospering in the Old Testament. So God, he's, he does not giving us rules to restrict us, to kill our fun, or to test your self-control. But actually, he gives us rules for our peace and our well-being and our, our flourishing, like our enjoying life. It's the opposite of what we often think of, why he gave us rules. And here's one way to think about this. Um, I've gotten to travel a lot, visit a lot of different countries for different uh, ministry trips, which has been great. And a lot of times, I'm just shocked by the way people drive in other countries. Uh, if you traveled a lot, you know that um, there's a lot of cultures where they just don't follow traffic rules. Like, I've never seen a place where there's no traffic lights, but I've seen lots of places where people just don't follow them. Uh, pretty much everywhere has, like, lanes, but a lot of places, they're just, like, suggestions. And people just fit as many cars as they can, and they're just cruising around. And it's honestly really scary if you're not used to it. And you, may, you, might, you might be able to argue, you know what, in this country, we're free from traffic laws. And you would probably be right, that's true, you're, you're free from obeying traffic laws. But I was talking to a friend, uh, Kyle Schaefer, and I was like, wow, this is kind of nice, right? You can just do whatever you want in this country? He's like, well, it actually takes like three times longer to get anywhere because there's so much congestion because no one's following the rules and it's just chaos. And also, there's way more fatalities, which confirm my fears of, of how I was feeling at the moment about um, the cab driver who's driving me around. And so you could argue, again, that those, those drivers, they're free from following the laws, but those laws actually are, are created to help us get places faster and safer. And so the, the laws are there to benefit us. So you might be wondering, though, like what, what laws exactly is Paul talking about? Probably it's not traffic laws. Um, and Paul, his audience would have been familiar with the term the law because they were very familiar with the Old Testament. Some, of, some even would have memorized the entire thing. But in the Old Testament, or the, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, there was over 613 commands that God gave uh, to God's people to follow in order to flourish. And Paul may have very well been re referring to the, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, um, and, which was given the book of Moses, uh, sorry, the book of Exodus to Charlton Heston. And it would have been very helpful to review. I thought we could review a little summary here about what the Ten Commandments are. Because like I was kind of mentioning before, we tend to make up our own rules about what it means to be like a good Christian that aren't really emphasized in the Bible. But the Ten Commandments were essentially the basis for God's law, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Like, Jesus affirmed the Ten Commandments. He even made them even harder to follow, I'm sorry to say. But here's the first one. He said, God says, do not have any other gods before me. That's the first and most important one, and probably the one we talk about the least. Uh, number two, do not make for yourself an idol. Number three, do not take the Lord's name in vain. That's not like, oh my God. It's like attributing something to God that he didn't do. 
Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Take a break, stop working for an entire 24 hours. Number five, honor your father and mother. Kids, listening? Number six, uh, do not commit adultery. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not testify or bear false witness against your neighbor. Number 10, do not covet. I don't have time to go into explaining all these rules, unfortunately. Like, we could probably spend a whole sermon on each of these. But it'd be worth your time, actually, to check them out sometime. And I think that we can all agree, if everybody else, everyone around you in the whole world, follow the Ten Commandments all the time, we'd be living in a better world. Can you agree with that? And I hope you can also see that you have broken many or all of these commands, at least in the way that Jesus applied them, uh, in order, because they apply not just to our actions, but to our motives, and that you've broken many or all of these commands. So, in hearing this, you might have a few objections about um, this. And maybe your first objection is like, all right, so I've broken a couple of these rules once or twice, but I'm still a good person. And actually, this is how most of the world um, thinks about religion, right? They, they think like, well, I'm better than Hitler or the political party I don't like. And, but Paul here, he's not saying in Romans 3, he's not saying that um, you sin sometimes. He's saying that you are under sin is what he's saying. Let's go ahead and read it. In Romans 3, 1 through 8. <clears throat> Paul writes, So what advantage does a Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they are entrusted with the words of God, that is the law. What then, if some of them were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God's unrighteousness to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also to be judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do good, Let's sorry, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. And so what Paul's saying is that he uses actually it's a legal term to say we're under sin, which means to be like you're a citizen of sin or you're a slave to sin. It's not just that you sin sometimes, which is also true. He's saying we're citizens of it. Uh, as opposed to citizens of God's kingdom. And it's as if sin is, is not just the symptom. Being under sin is like the disease that we have. It's like you, you can't get into a COVID-free zone because you have just the symptoms. You have to have no symptoms, or you need better yet, you need a test that you have no COVID. And do you really want to live in a heaven where people only sin sometimes. That would be just like being here. <laughs> heaven is, is, by definition, a sin-free zone. Uh, this, the other objection you might have to, the, to God's law is like, 
who does God think he is that he gets to legislate my morality for me and tell me what to do with my body? How dare you? Uh, my kids will tell you they feel the same way a lot of times. They're like, who are you, Dad? Tell me what to do. And a lot of times when I tell them what to do, they tell me, I wish I had no father. It's pretty, pretty brutal. No, they've only said it like once or twice. But if you consider the, the qualifications I have as a father to parent my kids, God has far more qualifications to parent and to give us rules to follow. He's infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, infinitely loving, fair, and responsible for us because he created us. That's why I'm responsible for my kids, right? They're not your kids because you didn't make them. Back to our, our main question then. Sorry, so that's why God's allowed to, to govern us. But back to the main question. Is there an advantage to knowing God's standards as they are revealed in Scripture? Yes, absolutely. It's good for us to know them and to follow them. Uh, which leads us to the next question. Does following God's law make us more righteous? Not just knowing it, but if you're able to follow it. Are you righteous? Are you good? Let's check out verse 9 in the text. Paul says, What then? Are we better off? Like following, knowing and following the law. Not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. So he's saying, nope. Um, and just to kind of give a little bit of context, Paul is using like legal uh, Roman legal wording and jargon here for basically the rest of the text. Um, and uh, it's really important to understand that because I think it gives us a better image of, of what Paul in his mind is doing. It's almost as if he's putting the church on trial and throwing accusations at us. Isn't that fun? It's what, what you want to do every Sunday morning. And um, Paul is basically, now he's going to quote the Psalms, and he's, he's quoting Psalms that Israel wrote about how bad their enemies were. Can you imagine you wrote some, some letter about the worst thing someone had done to you, and then someone reads it, and this is like, hey, this is actually what you've done to me. It would have been very offensive for Paul's readers. They, they, they knew exactly what these Psalms were about. And Paul is saying, actually, this is you too. So let's go ahead and read it. Um, from verse 9 through 18. Uh, fun fact, this is the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New, in the New Testament. So, um, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And just to pause there, like, we don't even have credit for seeking God. Like, even for our repentance, for our turning to him, even that is something that God has brought about in our hearts. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. So you're saying there's not a chance. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
And all of these are not specifically tied to each one of you, but if you consider the history of humanity as a whole, you can see this is pretty much the story of us, sadly. That we, we, we're not good, we do not seek God, we lose understanding about God's law, and we, we devalue God's creation, so we're, able, we're, we're fine with being bitter and, and harming each other. And because, um, because of these things, it would be unfair for God not to judge humanity. It's because he loves us and he cares about us, he, he cares when we hurt each other. Like, I would be a bad father if I let my kids beat each other up, and there's like, no consequences for that. And God is um, he's holy, he's perfect, and he's going to bring like, um, perfect, perfect um, fairness in heaven, which is what we want. And so as I was mentioning, um, Paul, he's like putting us in a courtroom. And this is a pretty intense analogy to, to be using legal language like this. But what's even scarier is that I think this analogy is meant to warn us about a real trial we're going to have someday in a courtroom or, or a place before God. And the book, and John, John talks about this in the book of Revelation. He describes a place of judgment and a judge and consequences for our misdeeds. And in Revelation, it talks about one day um, we're all going to be raised from the dead, all of our actual physical bodies. We're all going like, to go to some place where there's a great white throne with God sitting on it. It's pretty terrifying. And by default, you're going to be judged like a normal courtroom. You're going to be judged based on your own deeds, which are all written down in a book. And this book has unlimited access to your entire life. As if it wouldn't be enough to just have what you posted on social media to convict you, which is pretty easy to do with anybody these days. But imagine if someone had access to everything you ever said or thought like there was a camera crew following you around your whole life. How exposed would you feel in that moment? And again, this isn't meant to be just metaphorical. I think we over-spiritualize this a lot because Paul took it literally. So we need to really consider that one day everything that we've done in the darkness will be brought to light. And the inevitable result of this trial is what Paul talks about in verse 20. He says, no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law. Because no one can stand up to this type of scrutiny. And Paul, he even talks about how we respond, how he would respond in verse 19. He says, now, whatever, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, that um, is us who know it, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. So in, in ancient courtrooms, if the evidence against you was so conclusive and so condemning, it was so airtight, what you would do instead of defending yourself, because I don't think you had like a lawyer, you would just put your hand over your mouth to, to signal that you have nothing to say. And one by one, um, each person in this courtroom will be just putting their hands over their mouth. Like, I can't. I have no rebuttal, essentially. 
And Paul in Revelation says people were sadly thrown into a lake of fire, which is their second death. It's a very distressing picture. And it's distressing thought that many people we love are destined for this. We don't like to talk about this. But the good news is that Revelation says that there is a second book. It's called the book of life. And in it, everyone's names who put their faith in Jesus instead of their good works, their names will be found in the book of life. And those people, they don't get all their deeds read, read out of the, the other book. And they're not thrown into the lake. But they get to live on a renewed heaven and earth with Jesus and the church forever. Now, the people in the book of life, are they better than everybody else, like based on the books? No. It's not that they've avoided sinning. It's because these are the people that Christ died for. It's the people that he was metaphorically thrown into the fire for 2,000 years ago. He's already experienced it for you. Your punishment has already happened if you're in Christ. It's the people that are united with him in both his death and his new life. 1 Peter 3.8 says, For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So, if you have faith in Jesus, your judgment has already happened. That should be huge news based on how much we deserve judgment and how awful it is. So we don't actually need to be fearful looking ahead to judgment. We can be grateful looking back at our judgment that happened years ago when Jesus was already judged and punished for us. He already paid the price for our sins. And not just the sins that you already did, but all the sins you're going to be doing moving forward. Because again, we're not continuing to earn our righteousness or our salvation moving forward. And so, in closing, I want to call us to repent of putting our pride in our Bible knowledge or our futile attempts to do more good works than bad. And let's stop measuring our worth based on comparison or on our own modified code of conduct, but rather let's live lives increasingly free from pride and the power of sin. And most importantly, no matter how tough our lives are, we can always rejoice because we're actually getting a better eternity than we could have earned. So um, let's respond by praying, and then um, we're going to take communion. Do you guys have communion cups? No? All right, never mind. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to worship. Father, we're grateful um, for the way that we do not have to earn um, your love, that you, you called us, that you saved us, um, I pray that we wouldn't be um, offended forever by your law, but that we would be able to accept that the law is good, but we're, we're just not good enough at following it, and that you are good enough for us. We are so grateful for you. We love you. Amen.